Welcome to Elements of Styles, the business podcast that trades in scarce thinking for community, conversation, and ideas in abundance. Each week, I, Mark Styles, sit with professionals and entrepreneurs, both local and global, and learn how they each add value to their communities, their partners, and their teams. Please enjoy. Hey, welcome back to Elements of Styles. Today, we're going to collaborate with the Dr. Joe Show, of which I'm a co-host. This was an amazing episode, and I really wanted to share it with you in case you hadn't already heard it. Please enjoy. We have an in-studio guest, Tom Hall, who is one of my new colleagues from Riverside Community Care. Welcome, Tom. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Joe. It's fantastic to be here. It's, uh, I've only known you a short amount of time, but... It's, it's really exciting. Thanks. It, 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 and, and the coincidences just go oh my on gosh, and on and on. Do. We just found out that we both have sons named Galen. How uh, I know. How crazy is that? I know. Right? No, I didn't think it was that crazy. You, you didn't? <laughs> I didn't until you, real, until you said you've never met another Galen. And then I said, wow, that's, yeah. that's wild. Then, ne- huh? Never met another Galen. Because I think the name's great. It's a great name. Galen was a second century Greek physician who set the tone of medicine for a thousand years. So that's why I named my son Galen. How about you, Tom? Uh, we, we well, typically happens. You go through a lot of different names and rule them out, but that's exactly the same reason. Yeah. Is that you know? And now the babies of 2020 and 2021, the most popular name will be Galen that's because right. of this show. Of this oh show. my gosh! This international right. uh, wow. podcast that right. is and, heard on all and, platforms. That's right. And narcissistically, I suppose my my eldest son is Jason, because my middle name is Aaron. That was going to be Joseph Aaron Tran's son. Just Jason. Wow. So, oh, hi cool. guys. A couple of weeks ago, we started talking about depression, mm. but we also started talking about being able to talk about depression. That there's nothing wrong with it. As a matter of fact, we encourage people. You don't need to be afraid of it. You don't need to be alone with it. Might Come help you. Out. Absolutely. And and this, the the uh, the guests we had on at that point, um, Andreas Martin and Julie Chilton, had written a paper looking at self-disclosure. Um, among physicians self-disclosing their own bouts of depression uh, with other people in the medical field and how it was helping those other people realize that they could come and seek treatment. But what we did not talk about was sort of the etiology, the, the root, the idea of where does depression really come from? And that's part of why Tom Hall is here to talk a little bit about that. But before we get there, can you tell po- folks a little bit about yourself and, and what you do at Riverside Community Care? Yeah, sure. Thanks, uh, Dr. Joe. Yeah, I've, I've been uh, working in the field of uh, what's called behavior analysis, uh, applied behavior analysis or behavior modification um, for some 30 years now, uh, working with uh, folks who have uh, intellectual disabilities and also for like 30 years plus uh, with acquired brain injury. And so my position has been seven years at uh, Riverside as director of clinic, uh, vice assistant vice president for clinical services in one of the divisions. So Riverside has a, a four or five different divisions. Ours is the developmental and cognitive services division. And so I've been there seven years, and uh, I oversee what are called uh, a group of board-certified behavior analysts, uh, the nursing department, and a couple of outpatient clinics. Our division alone serves about 2,000 people a year um, in various capacities, uh, whether it's residential programs, 24-7 type programs, or uh, the outpatient clinics and, and, and the like. And so it's been really, I tell people, I, I live on the Cape, so 
I travel 600 miles a week just to get to work, and I, I say that I, I wish I'd found the job 30 years ago because it's wow. really a cool place, and I think you're starting to learn how eclectic it is and it's wonderful. How, how great it is there. And uh, But didn't you do the math on how far you'd actually driven to yeah, work? Yeah, yeah, in March, uh, it'll be seven years in, in March, and if you do the math and actually calculate it on 52 weeks but on 48 weeks uh, allowing for vacation, I will have been around the world eight times wow. coming up. <laughs> just I don't I just like to emphasize like my my uh, you know with my bosses and stuff my uh, devotion so to speak and that's just getting to work that yeah. doesn't include going to to Andover and the like so we have our our residential programs are sort of on the Beltway you know from Norwood all the way up to Andover and uh, my wife always asks me where you're going today and I either say Boston or New Hampshire so huh. she'll understand right. the difference yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, and it's fantastic having you know it's f fortuitous that we have inter intersected like this, and I've I've never had anybody sort of uh, spend some time, well, a couple colleagues, but uh, talking about uh, depression and the potential neurocognitive un underpinnings, what what's going on in our brains yeah. that might relate to anxiety, depression, and and other stuff, you know that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's do that. Do that. Let's, let's dig, dig into right that. in. So. Go ahead. Let's start. So you had um, had had been exposed to a, a scientist who was practicing in the twenties. Yeah, in uh, um, a Gestalt psychologist uh, by the name I love her first name Bluma B L U M A Zygarnik. So Bluma Zygarnik, um, as happens with uh, some of the neatest kind of hypotheses and theories and studies, happens just from a conversation with her professor. So her her mentor. Uh, and she were talking about how waiters, uh, she's from, Ru you know, Russian, um, and how wait staff uh, at restaurants weren't necessarily writing down what their orders were, but remembering them nonetheless. And there's one anecdote where one of her, uh, one situation where they went back to the restaurant and the waiter didn't even know who they were. And she said, well, how can, how can that be? How can you not recall who I am? And the wait staff said, well, essentially, if I, you still have a tab, and I haven't completed your order, I can remember um, what, you, what you got. As soon as it's completed, it's out of my memory. Hmm. And I, I've, I've done waiting, and I know I waited on tables, and I know what they're talking about. So what she did is a very sort of a seminal study in 1927, uh, looking and comparing uh, finished tasks versus unfinished tasks. She did it with children, with adults, and she found that there's a, a, around 90% of the time you're going to remember an incomplete task. So if you leave the house like we've all done and said, geez, have I forgotten something? Well, there's like an 85% chance you have. It's especially evident, for example, in the movie Home Alone, mm -hmm. you know, where mom's on the plane and she finally goes, Kevin, and she's, she's uh, left her kid at home. Right. So it's a very, you know, it's a very adaptive kind of neurocognitive response you know you you need to know what's unfinished it happened to me just this morning because I, I usually make myself a, a peanut butter sandwich on some really nice bread you know my, it's still my the I diet mm -hmm. I talked about a long time ago and this morning I get in the car I'm about to drive off and I realize whoa forgot my sandwich so yes and, and I'm sure all our listeners have something that that has happened right yeah. So go on. Yeah, and so uh, the hypothesis I had was that, because um, I've talked with, you know, I, I know people who have been on various antidepressant medications, and one of the things that happens is, and you mentioned this as well, 
in our preliminary talks was that uh, it's, uh, they, can, they can blunt your affect in your range. So, uh, okay, I f I'm feeling better, but is... So my, th my hypothesis, my query wait, is... Wait, so let, let me just translate. Yeah, so sure. Blunt, blunt affect yeah, means what? Um, well, you don't have as much range. You might not laugh. You might not cry during a movie. You might have not as much range of emotion, or you might even have your creativity kind of stifled by uh, as a side effect of, of these medications. Yeah. So my question is, my hypothesis is, is in fact um, anxiety, getting nervous and worried about stuff uh, that is incomplete, does that lead to how you know how complex our lives are now? And I guess in in earlier days, you know, when we were developing as critters, um, having a few things incomplete was okay. Now there are so many things coming at us mm. that I wonder if needing to get them completed is leading to anxiety, and then into what's called a learned helplessness type mm. of phase, and then depression. Hmm. And it's related to, I think, that some of the other things that go on is, is this something that I can see coming? Or is it something that might have happened to me abruptly? Like, for example, if you have a loved one who's aging and, you know, and, and, and is going to pass away, you can see it coming. And you might have less of a response than if somebody suddenly and younger passes away. Uh, so, and I've, I've felt that, you know, in my life where it, it really physically feels like, boom, things pushing down on your shoulders, you know, that uh, when it comes to depression. But is it, in fact, related to, to this? To this? And so I was noticing in your book, for example, as early as page four, you mentioned the uh, example of going into a doctor's office and, and then someone comes in after you and they get, uh, they get into the office before you. That is one of these incomplete, doesn't fit kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, other more extreme examples might be someone cuts you off in traffic, you know, and you um, have some people will have a um, very sort of okay response to that, and others might become much more anxious and even aggressive or or feel like they can't do anything about it. Um, so um, yeah, that's that's the the essence of w the hypothesis, you know, of of this. If I'm making sense, Absolutely. you know, that and that's what we're going to talk about. But let's dive a little bit deeper. So. The idea. How do you how do you get from 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 this example of the incomplete task, which was a great study by the way. You know, it's imagine amazing. imagine you're, you're drawing something and you're just about finished, and the the examiner says, "Stop, stop, pencils down." Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, sorry, pencils sorry, down. Sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we've got to do something else, and and it bugs you. Mm. Right down to like cliffhangers. Right exactly. down to cliffhangers. That's How exactly so, Tom? Where, what's the association with that? Well, I mean, <clears throat> if a season of a show or a movie in a series ends on a note that's you know supposed to grab you, it's it's going to keep it. It's going to be on front of minds until the next installment. Or even worse, if the end of a series or a movie, like if it's bad, it's usually bad because it's not a satisfying conclusion. You don't know what happens to the characters. You know, threads are left untied. Mm. It's not satisfying at all. Tom Hall, what about that? Exactly. That's a, a, exactly a, an excellent example. It's been exploited in... Um, I used to love to watch the show Batman on TV. Yeah, we sure. At the same time, we'll wait till the next Bat Time, Bat Channel. And it, that's exactly how, dot, it, dot, how, dot. how that works. To be continued. Being exploited. Right. So not, it's not uncommon in psychology to find advertising you know, exploiting, so to speak, or utilizing some of these uh, kind of phenomena. But you're exactly right, Tom. That, that's, that's a great example. So the incomplete task hangs over so heavily that it creates 
anxiety, which then creates depression. Is that that's, the, the theory? That's basically? the theory. Yeah, that it's, it's that fascinating. From, um, from a behavioral standpoint, what happens in this concept of learned helplessness? So one of the things Dr. Joe and I were talking about earlier today is how we use different language to yeah. talk about the same stuff. Yeah. You know, and as a behaviorist, I you know you know, uh, follow certain doctrines and try to assimilate and make them fit with other types of uh, language that's used and, uh, and stuff. So what happens with learned helplessness is you take the poor little experimental mouse or rat and you divide their cage in half and you give a gentle tingle to the, uh, the floor of one side and it jumps and gets away from it. And then you tingle that side and they jump back to escape it. But then it, eventually if you start to tingle or give an electric shock to both sides, they give up. Mm. and they become helpless. It's called mm. learned helplessness. And I, we all have different thresholds, I believe, for wh how we respond to these, what Tom was just talking about, whether you dwell on something, mm. whether you worry, and if it really gets you down, um, I think that's where possibly where uh, depression comes from, so, in, in part. You know, there's other factors. But um, we were talking earlier, uh, Dr. Joe, about your your own threshold. That, that you have so many, and just knowing you <laughs> as short a time as I have, you you've got so many balls in the air, so to speak, and things that you're doing that you suspect your zygernic effect. That's what it's called, the zygernic effect. Uh, that your threshold is high, so it takes a lot for you. You know, you can handle it. You know, and others might not. And it has a lot to do with how you were raised and mm. uh, your expectations. Um, and so, um, so you know, would OCD be the polar opposite of someone who can handle it? Yeah, they if have to I, I believe under this theory that uh, someone is obsessive compulsive, like I need to go down and check the stove. Like, right. well, that's one of the examples I give is yeah. that if you wanted to feel this effect vividly is if you're happy to be listening to this on a podcast or whatever and you're near, I know you guys have a kitchen here at the studio, so if you went to the kitchen, turned on the flame and the stove, turned on the water and then came back, you could do that but you would have this gnawing feeling that something's not finished. Right. Yeah. And so if you go downstairs to check, did I lock the door? And then you go back and you have to go back and check again, did I lock the door? Right. Or if you're looking that things have to be just so and lined up, is that also part of the pathology of, um, of, o of OCD? And lo and behold, Paxil and other medications are used uh, and uh, what are called these selective serotonin reuptake SSRIs. It's a fancy name for a lot of the medications that are used, and lo and behold, they're used for, for, for that as well. So um, what, are, what, what are they doing to the, to the biological domain at that point then? They're, exactly. they're triggering what, that like to relax? The, the SSRI. You can let this, this task go? Well, it's, oh. it's, interesting. It's, it's increasing the availability of a neurochemical called serotonin, which we know is associated both with depression and anxiety. So, so lack of creates depression? Yes. Got it. So the serotonin reuptake inhibitor, uh, imagine that, that you are a, a brain cell and I'm a brain cell, and in between us is this little cleft, this little gap called a synapse, and I hand you a piece of candy, and you take it, and everyone's happy. And I hand you another piece of candy, and you take it, and everyone's happy. But I'm starting to run out of candy, right? You're doing fine, but I'm running out. So I go to give you the candy, and I think, nah, I really can't do it, and I take it back, right? So your hand would go out to take the candy, but there's no candy to take. So after a while, you're not even going to bother putting your hand out. So the hand is the neurotransmitter receptor. It is the place, like the chair, where that serotonin is going to go fit in and make that cell happy but I need it too 
so I take it back. Now, everyone is getting a little sad because why don't I have enough serotonin? Because I'm not making as much, so I got to hold on to mine. Got it. And yours is now getting less and less. And then along comes Paxil, Prozac, Zoloft, Celexa, these serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And it basically would stop my hand from taking back my piece of candy. Well, because it's continuing to push new supply. That's right. right. So I'm so I'm pushing it out, pushing it out, but I can't take it back anymore because of the, the Prozac. It's a reuptake inhibitor. I can't reuptake. I can't take it back. Right. So I'm thinking, whoa, I am running out of Prozac. I'm running out of my my candy, out of my serotonin. So I shout to my neural cell, to my cell body, and I say, hey. I'm running out of serotonin. And my nucleus shouts, okay, I'll start making some more because that's where the factory is. I'll make it. It's going to take a couple of weeks to get it up to you, though. So just hold on. And on the other side, your cell, Mark, right, all of a sudden there's all the serotonin out there, but you don't have the receptors to take it. You've taken all those back because it costs you money to make all those chairs for the serotonin. So you shout to your nucleus, hey, guess what? There's all this serotonin here. I need some more of those receptors. And your nucleus goes, okay, I'll send it up to you, but it's going to take a few weeks to make it. And that's why these medicines can take four weeks to work. Right. Because you got to rekindle all of this action. That's a reuptake inhibitor. And basically, that's how most medicines work. They either stop the reuptake of serotonin or dopamine or epinephrine, a couple of other things. But that's, sorry, that's, that's psychopharmacology 101. Mm. That's how these things work. So, yes, when your biological domain is being depleted of those things, it's just the way the cells work. It's their I am. And then you add in a medicine. No one's broken. Right. All you've done is change the environment of that cell so it can't take the serotonin back. Mm-hmm. It's not broken. It's just not making the serotonin. That's its I am. You change the environment, you change response. And then what happens is a person starts to feel less depressed and they can do different things at home in the social domain. Their IC changes. They start to feel better. They start to see themselves better. Other people see them as more productive. So that small change can have a big effect. That's how I... That's how and I that prescribe requires medicine. two forms of medication, one to create the serotonin and then one to continue to grab it, or nope. is it all one medication? It's all one medicine. Got it. So, so it's a serotonin inhibitor. Reuptake inhibitor. Re-uptake right, so, inhibitor. The, so the first cell that's making the serotonin called the presynaptic neuron, yeah. that gap is called the synapse, so the presynaptic neuron gets blocked, taking it back up. The postsynaptic neuron has to make more receptor sites. Everybody's happy. That's how they work. So why would someone suffer in depression if there was the medication to make that small change? Well, that's another good question. Tom, you want to you well, take a shot at that one? There's a lot more to it than yeah. just the uh, pharmacology. There's, um, you know, your genetics and how um, your environment and how you were raised, you know, and uh, it has a huge, huge effect. Uh, there, We were talking earlier today about the critical periods in your development where you better get this right and you better have, like there's a psychologist, a Neo-Freudian, they're called, uh, called Eric Erickson, mm-hmm. and his he has different stages of development, you know, and the very first one one is trust versus mistrust. Right. 
and uh, and you have to get that through that. You know, uh, if you have, we were looking at uh, uh, some experimental stuff today, Dr. Joe and I, where um, there was a deliberate experiment where the mother was not interacting in a reciprocal way with her child, just as a, uh, her baby. It was, it was a like baby. A baby. baby and five, four the, months old. the meltdown, the physiological yeah. meltdown that this poor kid had, it was just a, it's called the, the still face paradigm, where the mother, instead of having this reciprocity of back and forth and I'm making eye contact, suddenly stops. And the baby just really, you can, oh. you describe, it was just astonishing. It's been replicated. How'd you get a mom to do that? Well, well it's, 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 it's an experiment. this has been the experimental, you know, very Yes, experiment. absolutely. And I, I was saying that mom must have been an incredible great, actress great, and right. be able to do that right. because she is, or a doctor yeah. really she's getting that. old. She's got to be internally getting distressed. Right. I mean, imagine a baby going, oh, mom, mom, and the, and the, and the, awesome. the mom is going, yeah, Shunk. yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, she turns away for a moment, turns back, and there's no response, and the baby begins doing more and more escalation to right. get her attention, right. get her, to get her to change. Can you do this? Why isn't this working? And eventually getting so distressed and shutting down, and then the mom goes, it's, all, it's okay, and they, immediately. Thank goodness. Right, right. The baby comes back. So Hopefully that didn't do damage. Well, no, no, no. no. <laughs> so, that was the prank of a lifetime. The prank of a lifetime. It's called the still, the still face paradigm. Uh, yeah. You can see it on YouTube. There's a clip of it. You yeah. know? But if that, imagine if that and the, uh, um, imagine if that were ongoing and you had a, a, a really dysfunctional sort of upbringing and right. you, then you're going to start, you know, the heck with serotonin reuptake inhibitors. You're going to start changing the biology of the brain and the what are called the epigenetics, how the environment affects the actual turning on of genes in our yeah, brain. So and cool. now you've got an organism who's a heck of a lot more vulnerable to you know depression and anxiety, et cetera. So we all have a different threshold. And I was describing, for, for example, uh, uh, an anecdote from Gandhi where he was getting onto a, uh, whether it's true or not, but it's, it's a really cool anecdote, he was getting onto a, a train off the platform and one of his sandals fell off and went down on the tracks. So talk about having a high zygernic threshold. Instead of saying, back this train up and get me my darn sandal back, he threw the other one down there so that whoever found them would have a pair. That's someone who is at isn't that, peace. Isn't right? that amazing? And, uh, yeah, and so we all have, and then there's, you know, uh, who knows how yeah. he or somebody like Nelson Mandela or somebody right. else that really has, or the Dalai Lama, you know, right. who knows? You know, right. I think we all have different thresholds. Yeah. You know? So many incompleted tasks. That's right. Right. Maybe. You don't have control of, yeah. So yeah. many open screens and windows yeah. and right. unread emails and texts and... Mm -hmm. Yeah. And eventually, it's like you know, you, articles that people uh, send you to read. Sorry, Tom, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I, I do that all the time. What's it? To Mark. Mark doesn't even check his email from me. Oh, from, I think oh, maybe from yeah. anyone yeah. anymore because it, it can be overwhelming and, and you yeah. and you become numb to it. Well, you have to. It's, it's kind of like so the essentialism, much. the art of saying no. Right? There's got to you got to be able to just be okay saying no and moving things out of your 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 world. Right? Yeah. But it's so hard to do because mm -hmm. does that imply we have less value? If if we are, and maybe maybe let's get back to this study of yours and, and to your ideas with it. How does the anxiety uh, and the sadness? How do you think these lead together due to the incompleteness of things? Uh, I think it's tied to what Mark was asking about during the break too. Is that is that learned helplessness? Yeah. You know, and uh, I have colleagues who will uh, that that have 
talked with me over the years, and, you know, physicians and the like, who, who we talked about this theory, and they'll call me and say, uh, I can't sleep. Bloom is bugging the hell out of me. You know, like, you're not getting enough rest. You're, you're physiologically drained. Um, and I think that's where, you know, things are perceived as catastrophic when they might not otherwise be. Uh, and I think mm. that's what depression is. I mean, my example is, unfortunately, we, we had our dog, uh, one of our dogs pass away very suddenly a few, a few years ago. And it was just, a, it's just a dog, you know, but not like a, a no, loved one, but still yeah, a very, you know. We, we, <laughs> yeah, we got an we episode did, we, we on that. No, no, we did a whole show on oh, this, yeah, yeah. Uh, on losing a pet, but go on. Yeah, it's no, no, actually I, our highest rated show. show. But it was like, I couldn't go to work the next day. It was like yeah. a ton, ton of bricks. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and that's probably the strongest feeling because I've been lucky enough to see other stuff coming, you know, in my life that might otherwise be, um, and we've had some recent losses as, as well in my in, in my life, you know, it's, it's just crushing that way, and it is a physiological feel, you know, response, and it has to do with how resilient you are in the first place, you know, yes. where you're, um, you know, and where you are here and now, you know, in your perception of uh, things, and uh, I think it ties in exactly, I mean, I just, you know, just the other day finished your, your book, and it does... Yeah, it fits. You know, uh, even even the discussions we were having today mm -hmm. about what lens are you looking through, and um, you know how prepared are you for life's foibles. But you know, I I believe things are only going to get more complex. You know, as our as as we grow, as you know, as artificial the human, intelligence, the human race grows. Right, exactly. You know, yeah. and how do you wrestle with it, and how do you. Um, and what you're hearing on the news or you're hearing or you're seeing, you know, uh, people are shutting down all the time because they, they just can't handle it, you know. So, so, so let's, let's... Or you choose not to, to participate, yeah. right? Absolutely. Like, why watch the news if what, it's bothering you? You withdraw. Or the substance use. Yeah. Or the substance yeah. use. And then you begin isolated. Yeah. And you isolate yourself and then... You move that, to the mountains and... But that increases your anxiety and sadness because we're social animals. Mm, right. You know, we... we being in a group is protective. It's it's a confirmation of our value. And when we're shut out, when we think we're not good enough, that's why I'm wondering whether the incomplete task leading to anxiety is really a sense of I don't I'm not good enough anymore. Right. I don't have the same value as somebody who can complete these tasks. Yeah. Which then leads to depression. You know, anxiety right is the precursor. Yeah. Is the flight branch of yeah. fight flight. We want to get away from something. But if you're faced with something that you can't get away from... Like the poor mouse. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Then the next best thing is to shut down and yeah. become invisible and hope the danger passes. And that's depression. I, I, I'm convinced that that's depression. The freeze branch of fight-flight-freeze, right. I think, is depression in humans. Right. And we were talking earlier today, too, about how the frontal lobe, the, the, what I call the mother of the brain, you know, sit up straight, chew with your mouth closed, and I know you're hot right now, Tom, but don't take your clothes off. Yeah. Thank mother, you, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> Both Toms. Yeah. You too, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> the mother of the brain keeps the, you know, the limbic system, the, the paleolithic brain in check, but Don does, if that doesn't take more effort, mm -hmm. it's right. much easier in life to do the wrong thing than to do the right thing. Why yeah. is that? Tell me biologically, why is that? Because I say that all the time to people. It's it's hard work to be positive. Right. It's hard work to be optimistic. It's easy and lazy to be pessimistic and negative. Right. And but why is... I, I've uh, said it's, that, it's, but it's I don't know it's why. It's really, I think it's how our brains are wired from the get-go. You know, that you're you're on high alert as, you know, in the paleolithic brain, you know, to watch out for danger. And your negative things for the brain are like Velcro. They stick. 
and that, that that's important. It's adaptive. Positive things are like Teflon. Why is it important? I, I, because, because as we evolve, if I if if I'm when I'm you know evolving on the savanna, and if I don't find a carrot today, that's okay. Uh, I can you know that's that's a positive thing. But if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But I darn well better know how to respond when the saber-toothed tiger right. comes. Exactly. And so right. what you have is the primitive, deeper part of the brain. The cortex is the wrinkly part. That's it means cover yeah. in Greek or Latin mm -hmm. or something like that. Uh, that part of the brain uh, tries to keep, as humans, tries to keep that primitive part in check. But there are more pathways going from that primitive amygdala, what's called the amygdala. So like. It's a tiny little uh, organelle uh, series of neurons. Uh, if you drew a line from your eye to your ear, that's where they lie on both sides of your okay. brain. And that is your smoke, det your, your smoke detector, you know, for the, for the brain. And it has, it darn well better be wired nice and strongly. So you have to catch yourself. Um, even that little experiment we did today, can I, can yeah, I mention that? Yeah, go ahead, please. So one of the things I do is I have these very soft, like this microphone, foam bats, yeah. and I ask someone to come up from the audience, and I stand there, and I simply whack them on the arm. And I told my colleagues today, I don't know how Dr. Joe's going to react, but he did the right thing. He whacked me right back as soon as I hit him. And I was wondering if you would, you know. <laughs> you were asking the rest of the people at Riverside. At Riverside, yeah. Because <laughs> when I first got those bats, I went up and down the hall. And Did you have a bat in your hand? To yeah, start he with? gave me a bat. Yeah, nine, so, we, so we're both so holding these little, these little foam, bats. foam yeah. softball bats. He whacks you, you whack him back. I whacked him back. Yeah. And uh, What's the no normal response? Well, that is the normal response. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank congratulations. You. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. But, so what's but, the abnormal response? The abnormal is, uh, I've it's done this a really lot with audiences and training, and I've only encountered one person that came up yeah. and said, with his arms by his side, I was not raised that way to hit people. Yeah. And there you go. So his frontal lobe is in charge, and all it really would have taken you, Dr. Joe, is a minute, uh, second, second pause. Second pause. Abs and I must admit, I, I considered it. I, I, I reflexively considered, okay, I really said, what, what does Tom want me to do? Because I could not hit him, or I could hit him, I'm, I'm guessing that the the sort of response is to to hit him, so I, I hit you. But it would be really interesting how traumatized kids, what they would do, how learned helplessness kids, what would they do? Yeah. Because they may be too afraid to hit back, because they know that the next hit is going to be hard. Right, right. That's a good point. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, so can we just talk about learned helplessness yeah. again and just kind of break it down because that's an interesting concept that I'd like to understand better. Yeah. Were you feeling kind of helpless that we weren't getting to it? Very no, quickly? just anxious. <laughs> just just anxious. super anxious. <laughs> oh, don't get sad about it. That's really the, the extent of my so understanding funny. of it is that paradigm, you know, involving uh, the, 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 the mouse. mouse. Yeah, the rat or the mouse. How, how so you, so it's like giving up, happen. but it can be but, taught. You're but, learning it, oh, right? It's well, right, right, because you're, you know, you're, otherwise you have a nice escape mechanism, everything's going fine, and then all of a sudden your environment changes where you can't get away. And so what do you do? And, and this is what we see a lot in traumatized kids. Yeah. Right. I mean, remember we had... Um, uh, Ed Jacobson here talking about ACEs, right? The yeah. adverse childhood experiences yeah. absolutely contributing to learned helplessness where you just, you know, it's been going over and over and over, relentless, and you just can't do anything. So you become powerless and you shut down. Now, it's in many fields, and I think that there are, are different sort of almost degrees of it, you know. Um, so when they talk about it in corporate culture, right, so the, the employees have learned helplessness is that because they continue to to try and bring ideas to the table and it keeps getting shut down and you just kind of 
get back in your cubicle and do what you're supposed to do. Certainly and could be, yeah, sure. That's why we strive they, for we strive for transparency and you know and um, speaking the truth to power and those types of things. But yeah, I mean. But but Mark, in in your law firm, I mean, you've done the complete opposite. You've created a culture where you encourage people to talk, you encourage them to be creative, and and people love working there as a result. I mean, they I think they, they feel, do. I and think we're they looking th for others. If you're yeah. listening, yeah, that's the oxytocin. Yeah, yes, it's the oxytocin. I think that they feel empowered <clears throat> by you, and is because that they can share ideas and and and. There is no ceiling, and yeah, gonna, but I could see other corporate cultures having this learned helplessness, like in a big corporate structure where you know your job is to look at these numbers and make sure these numbers are right. Mm -hmm. Right. Don't do anything else. Well, but uh, that and and you know in in the mental health field, you know, a lot of people are 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 really evaluated on their productivity. How many patients can you right. see? How much billing can we get done? Right. Yeah. Terrible. I, I'm sorry. You know, it's just terrible yeah. because now you there you are as a clinician working with people in need and you're beginning to feel that you have less value because you can't keep up. You can't right. meet your quota. Mm -hmm. Come on, man. This this you know it, it's not like we're you know we're we're harvesting corn here. Right. I mean these yeah. are these, right these are people. So let's let's get back to this effect here. Now, now how would we really look at or, or create a study where you could test your hypothesis? Well, I think it would lend itself to uh, what is what's called a randomized uh, control, you know, double double blind study. So you have a group of folks that uh, you give these tasks to exactly what uh, Bluma did um, uh, in her study, and. Half you would give a placebo to, and the other half you would give um, the SSRI, and mm -hmm. you ought to see that 90% or so recall of incomplete tasks abate. You know, um, and then you would have some sense that yeah, these these drugs are actually having that kind of effect, and secondarily making you feel better. You know, positive, not necessarily taking you from depressed to from depressed to what we call euthymic, which is normal, to maybe hypo, like a, a, right, you, feeling you, way too happy, happy, too happy, happy, too happy manic, but rather just right. scraping away those, uh, those things that, that you're dwelling on yeah. and leaving you in a better place for your social domain, for your home. You know, uh, it's, it's a biological, obviously, adjustment in the IM uh, theory. And leaving you more um, prepared, so to speak. I, I would suspect that it might even help us understand that maybe these drugs are best used as a catalyst to getting better. Mm. Uh, and that what really matters is the educational part about, about it and the lens with, that you're looking through. Like we were talking earlier today that we all need to have, and this is one of the things that uh, you, know, you were asking, is what, what's my takeaway from, from your book? And one of the things is that if we have... Um, uh, this uh, book, by the way, is Do You Really Get Me? Oh, yes. Yeah, because I've really got a few me. books, but this one is Do You yeah. Really Get Me? Which you can... Yeah. Just call Mark, you'll get your copy. Yeah. I will, too. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that we all come with a certain lens that we bring to every day and every moment, actually. And that can be analogous to what we talked about today, which was um, if I gave you all a pair of glasses to put on that were sort of gray and cloudy you'd look through them and you'd say oh gosh things look kind of gray and you know depressing or whatever 
And then I give you a rose-colored pair of glasses with, and you look at it and say, oh, it looks kind of interesting, pink and stuff. What if I gave you a, a blue glasses, lenses with uh, blue uh, lenses, and then held up a lemon? What color hmm. would the lemon be through those blue glasses? You'd say, it's, it's green. But is it really? No, it's, it's not yeah. green. It's, it's reality is that it's yellow. And that those glasses are the metaphor for what we bring, you know, what the the uh, the ex our, our perception, our predisposition for cert for certain things. And I think one of the takeaways that I, I I got from the book, especially, was to do that pause that we talked about, to not judge, yep. you know, to put yourself uh, in the the theory of mind and. and Put, give yourself a second to be in that other person's shoes, whether yeah. it's what you talk about is in terms of like saying hello to somebody that you might not otherwise, and start that positive, what the behaviorist would say, a positive reciprocal relationship. Mm. Is that more difficult? You betcha. It is. Why, though? Help me understand that. What's your well, theory? Uh, it's just that, is that you have to activate that frontal part of the brain to tell the primitive part to, you know, stay in check. Yep. And it takes more effort. And, and I, I think... So as we it, evolve... It can, be, it can become more automatic as you're... Yes. Especially, you know... You as can, you train you can, it. You can unlearn, so to yes. speak, that learned helplessness. You can, you know, you can, you can unlearn the right way to, you know, enjoy that. I, I think it's, it's because of the, the chance that somebody won't say hello back. But and that's the primitive part, right? Yes, that's, that's exactly right. That's what inhibits us. Because uh, if I worry that you're not going to say hello back, that anxiety can inhibit me. It's the flight branch, right? So I'm going to run away from that entire Do behavior. Mm -hmm. The I am is saying, hey, if the other person doesn't say hello back, that's their I am. Right. Yeah. That's about them, right. not about you. You made the, the overture. You show that you're a social animal. Right. And for whatever reason, they're not. And you can wonder about that. You don't have to worry about it. Right. right. So it, it and ideally... If you say hello to someone, you're going to activate their mirror neurons right. and they recognize that you're peaceful and that you're interested in them. And whenever you're interested in somebody else, it increases their value because why would I be interested in you if you weren't valued? I mean, obviously there are, there are different permutations to it, but in general, this is, I think, why a lot of people at parties won't go over and say hello to that person that they really want to. And, and I and because they might be rejected because they might mm -hmm. reject it and and for for me this actually was one of the small changes that had a huge effect in my life because when I first met Carol Carol my who's now my wife was on the other side of the room and I was sitting on the other side thinking I really want to meet this person and she got up and walked over and sat down and we talked about it years later she she would never have done that before, but she said, I'm going to do something different. I want to meet that guy. I'm going to go over, and I'm going to sit right next to him. Small changes. Yeah. Mm. And so she came over and sat next to me and said, hi, my name's Carol. And I went, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Joey. But, yeah, because, uh, you know, but that's it, these small changes. So, you know, Tom, we've got a few minutes left. Small changes can have big effects. First rule of the I am. Yeah. Change something in any of the domains. What can you tell our listeners? What advice can you give them? What small change can they make? Well, I think I, I think what we talked about earlier is uh, taking that moment to pause, you know, and allow the front part of your brain to do what it's it, it can do, you know, and um, s suppress that more automatic response, like like you had with the phone bats kind of thing. And mm -hmm. I think that's that's important. And uh, 
it's a self-fulfilling process that you you know you eventually you, you will start to experience and you'll feel better even if you don't get that re reciprocal response like we're talking about you will still feel better you know uh, and I think that's that's really important and you, because it's not an incomplete task because you thought I, w I would really like to say hello to that person right and I'm going to as opposed to leaving it incomplete and then yeah. dwelling Walking on it what if I'd said it's yeah. like a what if not having what if yeah. so great great advice so a stop leaving the incomplete task right yep. say hello yeah or if it's an useless incomplete task then just let it go out of your mind and just let kinda it go roll yeah. off the shoulders you don't have to own it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. frozen let it go Isn't and then you will feel great yeah. yeah we have to be able to let these things go or they will consume us it's one of the things that I say to folks who suffer trauma I say to them you know if, if anybody tells you to, to get over it just you know tell them to go to hell because you right. won't but you have to come to terms with it because mm -hmm. it's part of who you are. You have to come to terms with it. So small changes have big effects. Great advice. Second rule of the I am, everyone's got one. You're part of someone's home or social domain. You have an influence on their biological domain based on the way you treat them through their IC domain because it feels differently if you feel you're being respected or disrespected. You control no one. You influence everyone. Second rule, you control no one, influence everyone. Tom, what kind of influence are you hoping to be? Oh gosh, <laughs> at my age, I hope I've already done some of it <laughs> already. Um, but I remember once, um, you know, somebody once wrote an email because I was going to help uh, consult with uh, a person that had uh, the loved one had a brain injury, and they wrote that, um, you know, talk with Tommy's a real mensch. I didn't know what a mensch yeah. was, you know, and that's what I, I hope to be, mm -hmm. so like a positive example. Even though, you know, I have my own biological and all the other domains are. Le much less than perfect, you know, but um, modeling that I think is 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 is, is important as mu as best I can, you know, yeah. uh, for others. Yeah, Mensch. You, know, you do your Mensch. best, like I, well, I was telling you today. Like, yeah, do, you just do your best, you know, and wh from where you are. And that's what the I am saying is: we're always doing the best yeah. we can. We're at our current yeah. maximum potential. If you don't like it, though, you yeah. can change it. Small step. Yeah. All right. Hey, this was a great show. Amy, sure thanks was. so much for being there thanks, in the booth Amy. and for doing Thank everything. You, Tom. Yeah. Tom, Tom and Tom, Mark. And Dr. Joe. Great show. Thanks. Catch you guys next week. Hey, thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice for a new episode each week and share this with everyone and anyone. If you have any questions or comments or have an idea for another guest, feel free to shoot me an email at mstyles at styles-law.com. That's M-S-T-I-L-E-S at styles-law.com. And if you are a real estate professional, be sure to check us out on our private exclusive Facebook page, The Real Estate School at 892, for content and Massachusetts continuing education opportunities. Be well, folks. Today's episode is sponsored by Title. Secure Title helps Massachusetts real estate attorneys, real estate agents, loan professionals, buyers, and sellers with all of their title, settlement, and escrow needs. Secure Title, S E C U R I T I T L E.com, where security and title come together. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Please seek legal, financial, or tax advice before taking any action 
on the matters or products discussed herein.